Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. Welcome to the Hoban Minute. Today, Bob and I are joined by a real champion uh, in the cannabis industry, the Chief Marketing Officer of Viola Brands, Erica Pittman. Erica, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I know we've been trying to get you on for a while, and it's uh, I think the stars finally aligned, and, and we feel really honored uh, to be able to speak with you because we know you bring so much knowledge and uh, understanding to the cannabis industry and especially in your role at Viola Brands. But what we want to really make sure we highlight for our listeners is your personal journey because we know you've had such an interesting career and you've touched so many different uh, sectors and, and gained so much marketing knowledge through all of those experiences. And if you would, tell us a little bit about your path into the cannabis industry, what you did before, and what made you so passionate to uh, take the position that you did in the last uh, 12 months uh, with Viola Brands? Sure, sure. Uh, so my path is a little uh, serendipitous uh, into, into cannabis, which I think a, a lot of people that sort of don't come from the black, now gray market into the white space, I think are coming from very unique backgrounds. Uh, for me, I was in media and uh, consumer packaged goods for uh, the bulk of my career for the past 24 years. And um, I, uh, I've worked uh, in, in the magazine space for about 15 years where I sold advertising, ultimately becoming a sales executive for some famed magazines like Glamour Magazine or even Vibe Magazine uh, and a few other timing publications and Condé Nast books. But I'm um, shifted into marketing about call it 12 years ago now, um, and I started working for a company called Combs Enterprises, which is Sean P. Diddy Combs' parent company, uh, where I was uh, an integral part of a, a significant number of brands within his portfolio, including the uh, really successful vodka, Ciroc, Ultra Premium Vodka, and De Leon Tequila, uh, but also helped uh, launch his television network, Revolt, and relaunch uh, his Sean John children's and women's lines, as well as our, his water company, and so... I've had a lot of experience from a strategy and operations standpoint on some, some very successful businesses within that portfolio. But throughout that time, I was always very, very interested in the, uh, the burgeoning trends in, in, in economy and, and gross domestic product, quite frankly, in the United States. And for a few years, I thought it was going to be um, natural energy. Um, it seemed like that was the next big wave after technology from a financial standpoint. But um, when I thought about... Um, how much oil plays a larger role into the economy globally. I realized that uh, uh, alternative energy sources is a little bit further down, down the road than, than we'd like to, to, to think. And, and, and suddenly I started to lean towards cannabis. And um, I've been watching cannabis, honestly, um, since the late 90s, just thinking about how the plant is uh, – is recognized or had been recognized at the time um, in this country. Growing up in New York, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I, I saw the war on drugs firsthand as a child of the 80s and just what it did to destroy a lot of communities that looked like the one that I grew up in. And I thought it was really interesting uh, the role that marijuana played within that, that dynamic. And uh, what intrigued me was the notion of cannabis being used as an alternative resource for uh, cancer treatment and cancer patients. 
um, who were dealing with chemotherapy and some of the side effects associated with that. And the, the way that the government began to allow patients to engage cannabis, but at the same time, people that I saw every day were being um, arrested and convicted uh, for felonies associated with the same plant that was being used to help terminal, terminally ill patients um, through chemotherapy. And, and, and some patients, thank God, that were able to, to beat cancer. So it was really intriguing to me. I'm like, is it a bad thing or is it a good thing? Um, you know, and I think, you know, obviously all things in moderation, we can say the same thing about opioids, right? They're used to manage pain and with the right usage, um, they're effective, but, you know, abuse can be, you know, detrimental. But nonetheless, the notion around when, where, and how to use cannabis, even as early as the 90s, is always intriguing to me. And so I've watched it peripherally, I'd say, for the last 20 years. And I think once cannabis became legal in Colorado, um, I was increasingly intrigued, but without having a ton of access to education and knowledge around the, the, the legal market, you know, my mind, I believe if I didn't move to Colorado and open up a dispensary, there was really no way for me to get into the industry. And obviously that was, you know, 15 years ago, call it give or take, uh, you know, two to five years. Um, but even fast forward today, I think people are still struggling with understanding the industry, you know, where the opportunities are and just educating themselves at large around the plant, the usage of the plant and the, you know, the recreational versus medicinal um, attributes of the plant. But nonetheless, uh, still watching it very closely, uh, never being a consumer myself at the time, just trying to understand what it all meant and how it plays into the larger scale of economics and, you know, what's next for the big industries um, in America. Um, I received a call from a co now colleague at, uh, at Viola to, to have a discussion around the strategy that, that Al has created around the brand. And quite honestly, had never really heard of Viola before. I was thoroughly impressed with the work that the brand had done to date, uh, particularly around the brand ethos. Uh, the brand is named after Al's grandmother, Viola, who suffered with glaucoma and arthritis and a number of other debilitating diseases and illnesses um, as, as she's continuing to age. And um, Al discovered the efficacy of the plant because of, he, because of his grandmother's pain and trying to find a solution for that pain. And um, after vaping, quite frankly, um, uh, she had a, a huge response from a glaucoma standpoint. She was able to see and um, where she had a lot of blurred vision prior to that. And I think for Al, it was sort of like, wow, I've really got to dig in deep and figure out, you know, what's really happening with this plant. And that's what started his journey, you know, call it over 12 years ago now. Since then, you know, Al has become the number one African-American license holder of all multi-state operations. Um, he has the largest African-American-owned multi-state operation in the country and arguably the world. And that's a tremendous statement. And I think it speaks to his passion for the plant, um, but more importantly, his passion for the purpose around why he started this business. It was to help people. It was to help people from a, you know, physical standpoint, and it was to help people, particularly people of color, black and brown people, uh, figure out their space and how to, to generate generational wealth within a, within a category that, quite frankly, has never really been um, in favor of them. 81% uh, of the ownership of can the cannabis uh, uh, category is, is non-black or Latinx. It's, it's white. 5% uh, is Latinx and less than 4%, give or take, is, is uh, African-American or black. And, you know, disproportionately, the number of African-Americans and Latinx uh, felony convictions for marijuana is, I would arguably say, the exact opposite. 
there are more African-Americans and Latinos being arrested and convicted of nonviolent felonies around cannabis than there are white people for the same, uh, same crimes. So there's a disproportionate story here happening, which is unfortunately the story of America. It is a story that has been told time and time again as industries burgeon and, um, and opportunities grow um, from a financial standpoint. And I, I think what Al has been able to do and what he's continuing to do was really, really provocative for me. And, and it gave me uh, even more incentive to want to, to, to participate and, and help to expand the story around this phenomenal product, product, this amazing brand and brand story and the amazing goal and vision he has for, for black and brown people in the category. No, it's very well said, Erica, and thank you for that, that history. Um, I definitely want to talk about your perceptions of the cannabis marketplace and to your point, uh, what does it mean and why is it so difficult for people to understand? But before we get there, uh, just for the benefit of, 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 I think, Eric and my own personal edification, would love to know a little bit about, put, our, put us in your shoes a little bit when you join Combs Enterprises. What's it like to, to move into that scene with those kind of people uh, that are just so well-connected and entrepreneurial-minded and just, uh, you know, connected to just a lot of really, really cool and interesting people around the world. Take us, take us through that journey. I know you hit some of the highlights as to what you accomplished, and, and I want you to use that as a backdrop, if you would. But, but you know, when you, when you walk in on day one, how does that unfold for you? Well, ironically enough, um, I, I, I am of the culture. So um, a lot of the people that uh, Combs Enterprises sort of engaged with, not, not all of the people, obviously, Sean P. Diddy Combs, I couldn't possibly have the same Rolodex that he has. But a great deal of the constituency, I think, that, that intermingled with Combs Enterprises, I had uh, predisposed um, access to prior to coming into that environment, uh, both professionally and personally. So for me, it wasn't a tremendous leap to, to move into the, the Combs Enterprises world, if you will. Um, again, I sold advertising for lifestyle magazines, very, very big lifestyle magazines. So I, I had access and tap, um, tap into uh, influence and culture and celebrity uh, for, for over a decade or so. So I was, I was quite comfortable in the environment. But what I can say is the thing that was unique and impressive for me, and I think really sharpened my sword, if you will, was Sean Combs's. uh intricate, intricate uh, involvement in, in the strategy and the build out and the rollout of his businesses. Uh, his companies are successful by his hand and by his design. Certainly there's a, there were a group and is a group of, and excuse me, and are a group of really talented individuals around him that forward the machine, myself included. But I think that his vision for what he wants to create and produce is so innovative and, and so authentically committed. He works tirelessly to make something out of nothing. So learning the skill set around the speed with which uh, Sean creates and the, uh, the the level of detail and dedication he has to creating excellence around the things that he creates was a new environment for me. Um, I, I came from fairly corporate structures, working in larger publishing firms uh, prior to coming to Combs Enterprises, which arguably at the time me, me working there was a $900 million portfolio, but nonetheless, it was still wholly owned by its founder. So technically it was a, you know, a privately held company and, and a lot of the process and procedure came out of evolution um, from startup to, to where I think they are today. So adjusting to 
to the level of speed, the level of excellence, and the level of creativity that, that Sean possesses innately was probably the biggest hurdle above and beyond sort of, you know, meeting global leaders and, and moving at light speed to, to create trend and culture. So I, I want to use that word culture and, and sort of dive into that for a moment to get your perspective, because as we think about the cannabis industry, you talk about uh, being part of the culture uh, with with your Combs Enterprises and, and your uh, you know career spanning to that point. Now, what is the cannabis industry culture? And I think this is part of the reason why people have a, such a hard time understanding what it is, what it means. They struggle to get their mind around it. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. There have been larger law firms that have tried to acquire our law firm. Uh, and you always end up getting down the road to the executive team. And the executive team tends to be uh, some senior attorneys that, you know, oftentimes are in their, you know, 65, 67 plus, plus, plus years old. And when you get to that point, uh, their understanding of the cannabis industry is, you know, literally uh, it's been said to me. So it's Snoop Dogg, right? So we're talking about Snoop Dogg. And, 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 and to good for my, Snoop Dogg. Right, good for Snoop Dogg, exactly. But you know, my point, though, is it's... But it's, it's also Willie Nelson. It's Willie it's Nelson. Also well, Willie Nelson. Well, so that, that's, what, that's my question to you. So, I, I, you know, when you look at it, it's, it's, it's Willie Nelson. It's Snoop Dogg. It's medicine. It's recreational. It's a job creator. It's an economic driver. It's a government revenue source. It's the grateful. It's a dead. gross domestic product. Yes. What 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 is the culture of the cannabis industry? Oh, that's a really broad question, and I think I might be able to do a dissertation on that to be completely <laughs> transparent. I mean, you know, the thing about it is, and this is what's so amazing about the category, is that it is the culture of cannabis is so broad, and it is expanding. Honestly, when you think about these, you know, these sort of connoisseurs, uh, they're calling them canisseurs, right? So these cannabis experts, people that have been, you know, indulging in cannabis for decades. Um, and then you think about how the legalization process is ever evolving and ever changing almost on an hourly basis in this country. It is changing the dynamic of what the audience looks look like, what the engagement points look like, and what the overall culture of the category looks like, right? And so if you're talking about the medicinal side of the category, culturally it is a very different experience. People are using CBD, which is also cannabis, right? Cannabis is THC and CBD. CBD is legal. THC is not. So how do you, how you utilize CBD and, and the culture around that is very, very different from how you use THC and the culture around, around that portion of, of the category. Um, when and where and how you use it varies depending on CBD versus THC. Is it topical? Is it a tincture? Is it a vape? Is it a concentrate? Is it a flower? There are all different ways to engage in it. Is it inedible to indulge the category? So the culture of cannabis could be cuisine and could be culinary. The culture of cannabis could be arts and arts and culture. So visual arts and musical arts and all different types of creative processes, which very many people, you know, engage cannabis when they're creating. Uh, cannabis is, is honestly part of the sports culture and fitness culture. When you think about CBD products that are used for muscle pain and, you know, and pain relief. Um, so, you know, Al Harrington has had several knee surgeries and he started a company called Replay under his Harrington Wellness uh, umbrella, 
which is a CBD topical cream that he utilized to help with his pain management because he did not want to take opioids and he didn't want to become addicted to painkillers or opioids. And so he used CBD as an alternative option for pain management. So there's a culture around that. So when we talk about what is the culture of cannabis, it's almost anything, anything you want it to be. The, uh, uh, innovation is starting to figure out ways to use the, the waste of the plant for, um, for, uh, for eco, eco-industrial options. So like flooring and, and, um, and uh, cleaning products. They're trying to figure out way, other ways to, to recycle the plant to utilize it in other areas of, of everyday life. So um, I, I honestly do not have a direct answer to what is cannabis, but I think the exciting part is cannabis is evolving into just about anything we want it to be, and certainly um, uh, rivaling some of some of their its competitors in the industry. When you think about basic categories around sports, arts, and culture, charity, uh, music, those are the four pillars that we focus on. But even fashion, the culture of cannabis has become you know become a fashion statement. Uh, so um, it's just a very it's a very very unique and exciting category. I think that's a, a fabulous answer, and and really what you kind of highlighted, and going back to what you were saying at the beginning around how you were looking at alternative energy or alternative resources, there there is an opportunity I think with industrial hemp, uh, another part of the cannabis plant, where we're going to see an entirely new commodity uh, come to fruition that fits into so many different parts of our world and different uh, natural resources as an alternative resource. But I, I want to ask you this because it kind of, when you said, when you said at the beginning, I hadn't thought about it and it makes a lot of sense. You said that Al Harrington may very well be one of the, he may be the biggest uh, figure in the world who is a person of color that owns uh, a cannabis company. And it makes me a multi-state operation, certainly. Yes. Right. And it makes me think about uh, something we saw just earlier this month, which is the NFL Players Association sent out a letter to uh, the agents in the NFL and said, we don't we don't want NFL players to support or uh, endorse CBD companies. And you think about the advertisements, I think with your background in advertising, uh, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this because you think about the advertisements you see on TV that players in the NFL or NBA might be in. It's a car commercial. It's a Doritos commercial, et cetera. And it, it, does it, how do you feel seeing the NFL Players Association coming out and saying, do not endorse CBD products. That's not something that we support. I, I think, I, I mean, I know there was pushback initially, but does that, does that irk you at all? You know, it doesn't irk me. Uh, I, uh, coming from the spirits industry, working, uh, you know, on Ciroc and uh, daily on tequila for 10 years, I am inter- intricately familiar with prohibition in the United States of America as it relates to uh, spirits and, and wine and beer. Um, and I think that we are a country of precedence, right? Our biggest and oldest contract is the Constitution, and we build everything around that. And you guys as lawyers know that <laughs> oh too well. But, you know, we are, we are a country of precedence. And when we look at history as an indicator and in how this country evolved throughout the prohibition process, I mean, you have to think about it in context. The prohibition was 88 years ago. It wasn't even a lifetime ago. Um, and so, you know, 89 years ago or 90 years ago, it was completely taboo to engage alcohol. Now you can't watch a television program without someone pouring a glass of bourbon or, 
you know, the way that, that alcohol is now socialized in everyday uh, life, I think is radically different than it was eight decades ago or nine decades ago. And so uh, looking at the past as an indicator, I think the same thing is happening with cannabis. People are very afraid. People are afraid of what they don't know. It is still federally illegal, although 33 states are medicinal uh, medicinal uh, participants, 11 states are recreational uh, and counting. Uh, but still, uh, federally, there are certain things that you just cannot do around this product that may be okay in certain counties and municipalities. And so I think when you look at uh, institutions like the NFL or the NBA or the you know, Major League Baseball institution, they, they have to be prudent about how they adhere to, to law and guidelines. And when you start to make concessions um, in an environment that straddles the line of, of, you know, illegal, you have to sort of draw a line in the sand as a leader to say, you know, either this is right or this is wrong. Now, whether or not I'm on you know, either side of that line is subject to a different conversation, but I think I do understand where some of the stringent ruling is coming in around this subject matter. And I, the good news is, is I think over the next, 12 to 24 months, that is going to change radically. I do not believe that the Fed can continue to, to, um, to hold off on the inevitable around legalizing, legalizing cannabis. I do believe that it is a matter of how to legalize it in a way that is responsible, that is regulated, uh, quite frankly, that is taxable so that these municipalities can benefit from it. I do believe a lot of it is revenue driven. And I think it's, they think, I think bigger than that, they want to understand how this particular industry is going to cannibalize other industries, right? And then what is the financial impact on those things? And so I just think there's a broader conversation at a federal level that still needs to be worked out. And once it does, obviously all of these things will go away. So it's frustrating, but you know, it's part of the course. And I think who knows? In six months, they may they may sing a different tune around it. Well, it, it, it is something that is just, it's remarkable that the federal government does not pay closer attention to it, but it's also a sign of the times and just the contentious nature of every single political issue out there. But it's going to become increasingly <laughs> relevant when you have our neighbors to the north as our Canadian friends and our neighbors to the south in Mexico with soon-to-be-enacted domestic distribution of adult-use cannabis legislation. That is going to put a lot of pressure, whether from a policy standpoint or not. Hopefully it prevails upon policymakers in Washington, D.C., no matter what their political affiliation, that they got to keep up with the Joneses. And if they're not keeping up with our neighbors to the north and to the south, they're missing a tremendous opportunity uh, or continuing to miss that. Now, we're, we're coming up here towards the end of this, and I just wanted to ask you, 2020 has been a, a crazy year for so many different things. We're faced with a pandemic. Uh, there's been you know, heightened social and, and racial tension across this country that we haven't seen in a long, long time. Uh, in so many young people's lifetimes, they've never seen anything like this. Uh, the cannabis industry continues to move forward. It continues to more than survive, but not quite thrive, but somewhere closer to thrive. How the heck do you plan for 2021? What, did, what does 2021 hold for Viola? Because as we plan, and so many of our clients plan what 2021 is going to hold, how can you be certain what it's even going to look like in 2021, um, <laughs> given what's happened to date? 
Yes. Well, I am no soothsayer and I don't have a crystal ball. So I am pivoting just like the rest of the world and literally taking taking it day by day. Uh, my team and I have been very agile and very flexible and just open to, you know, whatever comes next. Uh, we are dealing with a number of different unthinkable crises right now uh, in this country and around the world. Uh, the good news is, is we're not experiencing this alone. The entire world is going through the same thing with this global pandemic. Uh, and so as we continue to, you know, uh, pivot, evolve and innovate, uh, the rest of the world is sort of at the, operating in the same cadence. So uh, the pandemic has forced us all to slow down, to rethink about how we engage, to rethink experience, what is face-to-face, you know, you know, uh, touch-to-touch uh, -touch experience look like? What, just what do things look like in terms of engagement? How are we defining engagement? How are we converting people from, um, you know, uh, awareness to adoption? Um, and, and so I think that the strategies that, that have been tried and true for years and years and years prior have needed to evolve. Um, cannabis being one of the, the actual products that, that has a tremendous amount of experiential um, elemental uh, factors. So people commune over cannabis, right? Groups of people get together around cannabis. It's almost like alcohol and drinking. It's a social interaction. And so figuring out how you do that with uh, shelter-in-place rules um, uh, in place, it makes it a little bit challenging. But one of the things that I uh, instituted very, very early on when I, when I got to really know Al and understand the brand and where he wants to take the brand, our product is driven on three principles. And it's, you know, it's plant first. So a premium product, it's purpose, which is the DNA of why we're doing this. And it's people, which is the lifestyle element of what we're doing. And so as long as we continue to develop programming and communication around those three pillars, we'll always have a story to tell. So my role in 2021 is to really lean into our purpose-driven work, uh, which is all rooted in education, entrepreneurship, expungement, and incubation, and really forwarding the progress of, of equitable opportunity for black people uh, in cannabis. So we will continue to do that, you know, shelter in place or not. Um, and, uh, and I think innovation from the standpoint of figuring out ways to expand our portfolio. We just recently launched in Washington state yesterday. We're very, very excited about that. We have some new news coming down the pike in the next few weeks. So we have zero intention of stopping. Uh, I just think the way that we can, we communicate with our consumer has to change to be more relevant for, for today. And what that looks like in 2021 I don't know. You got to call me in January. I may, may have a new perspective for you. <laughs> Let's get through the inauguration and then we can figure out how we, how we roll out 2021. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And we, and we would love to have you on again, Erica, cause it's been, it's been really informative and, and educational and fun to, to lit, to talk to you and get your perspective on these things. And for any of our listeners who uh, want to learn more about you, we know uh, uh, you published a book in February of this year. It's called What Mommy Never Told You, A Woman's Guide to the Next Phase of Life. Uh, that is available on Amazon. Uh, you can also find more information at ericapittman.com and more information about Viola and all of the wonderful products that you guys have at violabrands.com. But it, it really has been uh, just wonderful to speak to you today. And we thank you for, for hanging in there with us, finally getting some time to connect with you. Uh, we can't wait to have you on again. I'd love to come back. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Erica. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. 
Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.